This is Medicaid Leadership Exchange, a podcast where Medicaid directors and other guests get frank about what it's like to steward the nation's largest health insurance program. 80 million or one in four individuals in the U.S. receive health care through Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program. Medicaid agencies administer a complex web of programs. Listen in as we explore some of the challenges leaders in Medicaid navigate and their top priorities to deliver services and build health. Hello, and welcome to the Medicaid Leadership Exchange. I'm your host, Gretchen Hammer. Today, we are focused on unwinding from the public health emergency and the incredible effort that state Medicaid agencies and the federal government will be going through as the public health emergency ends. As you all know, Medicaid is an entitlement program that provides critical services and supports for the health and well-being of millions of Americans. During the COVID-19 pandemic and the public health emergency, the states and federal government worked together to take emergency actions to protect the health and well-being of Medicaid beneficiaries. That work included implementing hundreds of emergency spas, state plan amendments, and other waivers that can guarantee continuous coverage and eligibility in the program and also ensured access to care. As we anticipate the end of the public health emergency, states face the daunting task of unwinding all of those temporary eligibility and access to care policies. This is both an operational and a leadership challenge that is unlike anything Medicaid programs have experienced in recent years and will require all aspects of the agency as well as external stakeholders to work together. So today we've invited two state Medicaid leaders to help us understand what it's like to prepare for something so unpredictable and unprecedented. After our conversation, we'll have our leadership guru, Ed O'Neill, lift up some of the lessons that he's heard and some of the insights that many of you would like to maybe take away from our podcast conversation today. So I'm gonna start with first our two Medicaid leaders and allow them to introduce themselves and then we'll jump right into the conversation. Henry, can I start with you please? Sure, Gretchen. I'm Henry Lippman. I'm the Medicaid Director for New Hampshire. I've been in this role for a little over four years. I've spent a large part of my career as a hospital executive in the financial area. Terrific. Thanks. And Tara. Hi, um, I'm Tara LeBlanc. I am the Medicaid Deputy Director over Eligibility for Louisiana Department of Health. I have been the interim Medicaid director for Louisiana for a year last year. I've been in um, healthcare arena for about 16 years and um, in eligibility now for about uh, three. Terrific. So as I mentioned in the intro, one of the major components of the public health emergency has been the requirement that Medicaid programs maintain coverage for individuals who would potentially have otherwise lost coverage. That's called a continuous coverage requirement. And it really has uh, made it possible for people to retain access. But now the states face at the end of the public health emergency, the responsibility to appropriately determine whether or not people who retained eligibility are still eligible for the program. And if they're not, to help them get connected to other sources of coverage. This is a tremendous shift in the eligibility of millions of people. Similar, it's been likened to the shift um, when we initially expanded Medicaid and opened up the state-based marketplaces and the federal marketplace at the beginning of uh, the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. So 
Henry and Tara, how are you all preparing for these changes in coverage and the changes that you'll need to make to your program around some of the other access to care policies? And Tara, since you're our eligibility expert, I'll start with you. Um, if you could just talk a little bit about what you're doing to prepare as we look at the end of the public health emergency. So as Louisiana prepares for the unwind of the end of the public health emergency, um, there's uh, two main focuses. One is on staffing and the other is on our system changes. Staffing, we are ensuring that staff are receiving training um, at least once a week on some refresher trainings because it's been two years since they've actually processed a renewal. Some of them may never have processed a redetermination at all that may have been hired during the public health emergency. So we're continuously training our staff we are also um, ensuring that they have the ability to get into a um, test uh, area of our system where they can go in and actually perform these renewals or redetermin redeterminations. Um, on the system side, we work hand in hand with the system to ensure that the system is reverted back to pre-COVID policies and procedures in the way that um, our team is used to operating. Terrific. So the intersection, really working at the intersection of people and technology, right? Making sure that the people who have responsibility for, for processing applications are prepared and trained, but also making sure the system is structured correctly. Um, and for anyone who's ever done work in the technology space, getting the people and the systems to line up is, is no small task. So terrific. How about you, Henry? What are you all doing to prepare in New Hampshire? Well, I think the first thing is to sort of frame what the challenge is ahead of us. And and I think that in terms of the scale and scope of it is it is unprecedented compared to even the opening up of the ACA, uh, Affordable Care Act. Today, we're really talking about people who could be put into a bad place. Previously, we we're talking about people being able to be put in a good place having coverage. And we're also dealing with the fact that there's uncertainty for beneficiaries in terms of when and how and understanding what's going on, but also for our staff, the uncertainty about their own personal situation um, as we work through the public health emergency pandemic. I think in terms of uh, New Hampshire, we, because of the way that things have unfolded uh, from a public health standpoint, we've been able to maintain the ability to continue to do redeterminations from people who do it voluntarily. And we have been trying to identify those things that we can do. And, you know, while there's a lot of uncertainty about what things may play out as, I think that there are things that we can certainly work on, which is to encourage people to voluntarily take the steps that they can take. Um, and to also to, you know, frame it right for our staff that saving someone, um, saving someone's health coverage for themselves and their families a really important mission thing and probably uh, the greatest opportunity to practice your profession. Terrific. I really appreciate you centering us on uh, the experiences and the uncertainty facing beneficiaries, right? Having a mid-year unpredictable timing change in your health insurance coverage really matters, in, in particular if you have a chronic condition or if you have a child with a chronic condition and, and continuity of care is really important. We also know that sometimes communicating directly with beneficiaries can be a challenge for Medicaid programs. We have to send letters with complicated language in them. Uh, sometimes people moved, and in particular during the pandemic, there was a lot of movement of people. 
Tara, how, how have you all in Louisiana been thinking about that engaging of beneficiaries and, and working to make sure that you understand their concerns and needs and also how you can improve your communication with them? We have been working um, during the public health emergency on a robust uh, communications plan um, for the end of the public health emergency, which will we will lean on our community partners, we'll lean on our providers, our MCOs, our sister agencies. Um, we're trying to look and uh, reach all of our beneficiaries from any angle we can. Um, they may receive communication and multiple in multiple modes, modalities, um, and the same uh, same communication from different um, provider organizations. But our goal is to reach as many beneficiaries as possible. We are doing it, running a campaign right now to try um, to get our members and beneficiaries to update their contact information with Medicaid, um, trying to get them back into the um, normalcy of checking your mail, responding to if Medicaid sends you a request. Um, we are doing that uh, communication push, but that our robust plan um, will begin as soon as we know that the public health emergency will end, as soon as that announcement occurs, which um, we will continue to just utilize all of our partners in our outreach and um, we'll set up community outreach ourselves and eligibility. Um, my eligibility team is statewide, so I have a great team. We can go into some of the areas that may not um, have all the connectivity and data components that they need to receive, um, you know, uh, text messaging or even um, apps on their phone from the MCOs, different angles. So it'll be some human touch that we're trying to add in to ensure that all the beneficiaries are um, actually touched. Henry, do you have anything to add to how you all have been thinking about communicating with beneficiaries? We started with the feeling that we needed to make a connection through credible sources, not only from the Department of Health and Human Services here in New Hampshire, but also to, to our advocates and stakeholders. And we have had a uh, contract with the University of New Hampshire uh, Law Center, the, the Health Policy and Practice Division, and it's staffed with people that are known to the advocates and stakeholders to educate them on what was going to happen and, and use them as a convener um, to build some credibility that this is really advocacy on behalf of our beneficiaries. And so I think that was a, a first step that was really important for us. And then we've been regularly communicating to like our Medical Care Advisory Committee, on a monthly basis, giving them status updates. We've also tapped into uh, Georgetown, um, had published a paper of best practices and outlined and talked about how um, New Hampshire is trying to um, practice those things and where, where we need to make improvements, being upfront about that and also being upfront with them about the number of people that were at risk. Terrific. So I'm hearing a lot about using and or building sort of an infrastructure of connectivity uh, as we're in this preparation phase so that when it's go time, as you said, Tara, when we're ready, uh, we will have had those uh, relationships established. I know we've talked a lot about beneficiaries and that's really important, but you know, other stakeholders include the legislature, right? Who will hear from beneficiaries if they get confusing mail and other things. 
Um, and also your stakeholders that you mentioned, your providers, managed care plans, and others. What other stakeholders have you been uh, particularly careful to keep in the loop or um, sort of keep abreast of, of this ever-changing situation? Uh, we have our governor's office, for example, has a constituent service. We've met with them. We've met with our congressional delegations, um, constituent services to make sure they know what's going on. And if they hear from people, they know who to reach out back to to, to uh, seek help from, from our division of Medicaid services. The other thing we, we've done is try to create a, a simple way to convey the complex activity that's going on. We, we use what we call a pink letter, which is very different than the paperwork that people typically receive in the mail. And it, it was a, it's turned out to be a good shorthand message. It's saying, if you've got a pink letter, it's something you need to, to work on. And all the different parties that we work with, um, stakeholders, whatever, they hear the word pink letter, they know it's about something. They don't have to explain the whole thing. It's sort of a shorthand version of, of getting a point across. And just to be clear, like, is the letter actually pink? Like the paper is pink when it comes in the mail? It is pink. Um, and um, we, we're keeping statistics on how many people uh, react based on on that and reporting that back out, sort of reinforcing that it's being effective you know, to a certain level. That is fantastic. What a great idea. And Tara, I don't know if you have other groups that you've been communicating with, your governor's office or your legislature. Yes, um, we do communicate with the governor's office um, on a weekly basis, as well as the um, secretary of the department um, communicates with the legislators um, at least on a weekly basis, probably more than that. And they are up to date on where we're at with the public health emergency, the direction that we're moving towards and what are our potential plans. Um, I actually received a request yesterday of wanting us to run some scenarios on, you know, what, how are we gonna handle the unwind from a legislator? And we also try to ensure that um, all of our advocacy organizations um, do receive some communication from us at this, you know, the continuous coverage, the maintenance of effort uh, requirements that we're under, but the change that will occur once the public health emergency ends. Terrific. We've been talking a lot about the continuous coverage requirements, but there were other emergency authorizations that were given as well. You know, some good examples are telehealth, and um, changes to beneficiary processes and, and appeals and things. How much are you all preparing for those changes as well? Is it most of your work focused on these continuous coverage or um, have you over the, since the public health emergency has been so lengthy, have you taken some of those other authorities and made them permanent? For example, telehealth or some changes in your internal processes? I don't know if either one of you have an example of, of that additional unwinding work that you've been focused on. So um, for Louisiana, we um, did um, apply for several um, of the waivers and leniency and you know loosened up um, opportunities by CMS, but some of them we have pulled back and some we will make permanent. Um, one would be telehealth is that, you know, as a state that we're going to go continue to go forward and allow telehealth in the provisions in, in which we're um, going through the public health emergency. But we, um, we did allow self-attestation of income in the beginning of the public health emergency, um, but Louisiana did not see a huge spike of enrollment in the beginning. So we withdrew that um, request from CMS 
because we didn't see the need for it. We were able to keep up with the application processing at that time. One thing that Louisiana did uh, apply for is the special um, eligibility group of the uninsured, which that will um, end as soon as the public health emergency ends. So that's a couple of examples of where we're at in Louisiana with the 1135 waivers that we've requested. Uh, Similar to Tara, New Hampshire expanded telemedicine and legislature has made it permanent um, and continues to to support uh, the expansion of telemedicine within the available Medicaid authorities, which are pretty broad. The second thing, similar to um, Louisiana, we also adopted the um, special group that for testing and treatment of COVID and uh, had a good take up of that. Um, and then I think in terms of some of the things we did early on, for example, we work with our MCOs and FIFA service components and came up with standard approaches to prior authorizations, extending those um, prescription refills early on in the pandemic to you know deal with the reality that the system was overwhelmed and that people didn't know how it was going to play out. As we've um, learned to cope with the pandemic, we've been able to move back a lot of those things to, to normal operations already. Um, we do have some of the, in the provider enrollment areas, things that we still need to work through in terms of going back to normal operations. It's just remarkable to me the breadth of the work that you all are having to manage. Uh, One that you implemented at the beginning of the public health emergency and those things, as you mentioned, some things you've retained and some things you've already decided to let go of. And then obviously the preparation. You know, we've talked a lot about communicating with external stakeholders, beneficiaries and others. How are you managing the internal communications flow, right? I imagine that you have some units in your agency who are really focused on this. This is their full-time job. And you have others that are sort of peripherally focused, but may have a role to play at some point. How are you sort of keeping everyone focused internally on the tasks and frankly, even keeping track of all of the tasks um, that you're having to manage with this unwinding work? In New Hampshire, we had, and we've had since July of 20, an intra-agency work group um, comprised of all the disciplines you could possibly think of from finance to IT to quality to communications, looking at the information that was available and trying to think through things. Even though we haven't known when the public health emergency would end, we've prepared as if it could end at any 90-day cycle. And as we've thought about based on the available information, how we might approach it, sort of this continuous process of, of thinking about it and meeting about it every week as, as a group. I think we've we've been able to think through a lot of issues and, and anticipate things. And we've expanded that to work with, for example, a Department of Insurance um, and the navigators that are, are uh, when there's been open enrollment periods. So I think it's, you know, working on it early and often and trying to implement those things you can do gives people a sense of being able to get their anxieties out about what they're facing and to, to plan for things. Um, and one of the areas where we were able to anticipate was, you know, overwhelming call, like a tsunami of call volume. We were able to um, access some ARPA funding to uh, bring in call center support staff that would free up our staff to do redetermination work. Terrific. Thank you. Tara? Yes, um, we actually formed a similar work group um, 
mainly to um, develop the operational plan that's required by CMS, um, which includes all of our tentacles in Medicaid as far as the managed care organizations, you know, that um, employee group, uh, the Office of Aging and Adult Services, that group, um, Citizens with Developmental Disabilities. We've encompassed all of that in our operational plan, so we meet on that um, monthly. We have been meeting on it. It's kind of in a completed state right now until we get new guidance or if new guidance is issued. So we do meet and we communicate on an ongoing basis. For me, the communication is key with um, staffing, the staffing component of the unwind for eligibility for our systems team, for our policy teams is going to take the heaviest lift. So that's where we focus a lot of our communication on trying to get everyone prepared mentally and emotionally about what this ending of the public health emergency is going to be, not just from a workload standpoint, but from a beneficiary standpoint. Um, you know, some of my um, call center team may have never, um, it may have never encountered a situation where a member calls in and says, I've had coverage all throughout this PHE. I'm in the middle of receiving cancer treatments. And um, now you're telling me I'm ineligible. And, you know, they're not emotionally or, many, or, or mentally ready to handle those type of difficult phone conversations. So we're also preparing webinars and um, so forth with our sister agencies with um, Office of Behavioral Health to ensure that we prepare not just my eligibility team, but as a, as a whole, everyone that is going to be touched by the ending of the public health emergency. Terrific, thank you for that. I, we're coming to the close of our conversation, but I did want to give you each um, a chance to to mention anything about your preparation or what you've been working on that we haven't had a chance to explore yet in our conversation. So anything sort of that seems really important that my questions in our conversation haven't touched on. And then after we hear from each of you, we'll turn to Ed and have him sort of reflect back to us some of the key leadership and and uh, lessons that he's heard you all really implementing as you're doing this incredible work. So, Henry, I'll start with you if that's okay. Gretchen, the thing that I would say from the staff standpoint is being able to identify some truisms, if you will, that, for example, being able to do voluntary redeterminations, being able to do something in what is some may view as a crisis or a tsunami or however you want to, to uh, define it as, but, um, you know, giving staff the opportunity to, to do some activity that is uh, contributing to what might be the anxiety of the overwhelming face of uh, the end of the public health emergency, I guess that is sort of preparing the people more and giving them a chance to, to voice and to, to do something. The, the second thing I would say is from a sort of a technology standpoint, I think that uh, we have, you know, adopted things that I think we'll be bringing forward after the public health emergency in terms of reworking um, how we do redeterminations in the future and strengthened our uh, ability to do, for example, redeterminations based on information that we already have, ex parte, sometimes it's called, and also our use of our eligibility system. I believe that Louisiana and New Hampshire have a eligibility system vendor in common and being able to get more people to use um, our basically system where they can load documents with their phone or you know via computer and be able to do much more business, if you will, electronically with the department. 
and uh, using this opportunity and the funding that's available in the short run to strengthen um, how we'll work in the future. And I think that's also enabling to our staff to feel like they're doing good work and and important work for not only now, but for the future. Yeah, I really appreciate you raising that, um, finding opportunities to improve and to to have uh, efficiencies gained. Tara. I think one of the things that we haven't discussed, um, and I know I've brought up staffing at at pretty much every comment um, that I've made, because staffing is the integral part of us being successful at the end of the public health emergency. Um, But on the staffing component, what is the new normalcy? You know, the majority of Louisiana eligibility staff worked in a Medicaid office. Um, We have 11 statewide. In March of 2020, we sent everyone to work from home, many that have never worked from home. So now the pressure of pulling them back, you know, what is our new normalcy? Do we come back in the office? Do we stay at home? Um, And that has not been made. That decision has not been made at first for as the state. We're still um, running our offices. Our offices are open, but we're using skeleton crews just because of the last variant um, kick surge. But that is a huge component because it's, um, not only do the anxiety of the staff over the workload that they're about to face, but the anxiety over, do I report back into the office? What is the new norm? How do we operate? What are we, what are we facing when we get back in the, into our new normalcy? Terrific. Yes. Thank you for for reminding us of those uh, just foundational workforce challenges that you're also having to manage. You know, I'm just in awe of the breadth of things that you are keeping track of and working on. Um, So Ed, I'll turn it to you to sort of reflect back to us what you heard as a leadership expert um, and that you would reflect back to us uh, about the work that's going on in the states. Great. Thanks, Gretchen. Well, the main thing I heard was two great Medicaid leaders talking about how they actually make the sausage and work through it and do a fantastic job of leading. Some things I'd take away from the conversation, um, I guess the overarching piece for me would be to um, um, ask the simple question, uh, now that you have had two years of COVID, what would you have liked to have known before COVID so that you could have been prepared? And a lot of your responses, I think, fall into, into that um, domain. Um, and so let me just start down the, the list of things. Um, Tara, I don't think you can say too much. Uh, train staff, focus on staff. So kudos to you for, for pointing that out. But I think we would have all wanted to have the, um, all of our Medicaid workers um, skilled. We, if we knew what they needed to know, we, we can guess what that looks like now. So improving the skills, enhancing the skills, and then also recognizing the success of their accommodation adaptations of what they have learned over the past two years and applauding that and getting them to recognize that's a resource that they can lean on as we go forward. I think we'd also, we, we would have liked to have uh, been able to anticipate the size of the change, the enormous dislocation that happened. In some ways, it, it, we, it feels normal now. And um, we might want to push people back to think about um, this unwinding as being something of similar size and significance. I heard both of you say, and particularly um, 
have examples up from pink sheets to different approaches to communicating with uh, staff and recipients. Um, communication is an important touch point. The lessons are, I think, over communicate. Um, we we may think things are going. We we have this in hand, but we may need to to add a little more juice to that. Simplify communications uh, wherever we can, and then in this instance, any kind of change like this repetition is a virtue. And then I think um, a subset of communication is is this last point made by both Henry and and Tara is messaging what we do know and what we don't know, um, it, it, at least putting a framework around that. People don't like to find out uh, if we, uh, that we don't know something. So just being uh, bold about that in the communication, these things seem certain, these things are uncertain and changing and likely to change. That helps people cope with it, our staff and maybe even the recipients. Um, I do think, um, uh, focusing on what we've learned, our ability to be flexible, our capacity for rapid response, our capacity to teach each other skills, not only within a program, but across programs and across the country. Um, it's really uh, an important um, uh, leadership um, skill to add. And then with any change, but I think one of the things that has come out of this past two years is the, the real solid virtue in leadership of being realistic, but positive. And I know we are tired. I, I talked to a lot of Medicaid leadership teams across the country, and I think we have used a lot of resources, personal and organizationally wide, and, and those are getting pretty thin. Uh, but now's the time to um, still bring a kind of positive can do. We did we did respond to COVID, but to bring that positive attitude to this, uh, but also to be realistic about the nature of the challenge. Things will change. Some things are unknown, um, but we'll push ahead and just remind them that they were successful at one of the greatest public health challenges that the, the nation has ever faced. And um, we'll get through this one, much like we've gotten through this last one. So um, thanks for letting me listen to, I feel uh, reassured uh, that the programs are all well in hand uh, as we go forward to this next stage of the accommodation. Thank you so much, Ed. And, and to your point of what we know and don't know, what we do know is that the states are deep in preparation and we should be uh, thankful and are thankful for that. And we also though don't know when all of this work will have to be put into play. So the end of the public health emergency does remain unknown. So for those of you listening, uh, we do encourage you to monitor announcements from CMS. Many states have stood up communications processes and websites that you can continue to monitor. But we are thankful for the work that you all are doing and hopefully we'll be able to put these very strong plans in place sometime in the near future. So thank you again for listening to the Medicaid Leadership Exchange and we hope to hear you on our next episode. This podcast is a collaboration between the Center for Healthcare Strategies and the National Association of Medicaid Directors. Season three is made possible by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation.